Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 23rd day of February, and the year is 2021. Now, we've been doing some discussion of thermodynamics uh, these last few episodes. I talked to you about uh, membrane proteins, and that led me into a discussion of basic biochemical thermodynamics. I want to follow up a little bit on that because we were talking about solute transport and a little bit leading into neurotransmission. I want to make sure that we have the foundations covered because then we're going to move into um, some really interesting aspects of thermodynamics and metabolism. All right, so very basic stuff. Heat, of course, is what? It's energy. And energy can be transferred from one event to another. And the difference in that is the difference in temperature. So basically, temperature is just a measurement of average kinetic energy of that interaction. Heat is always transferred from a substance or event at a higher temperature to that of a lower temperature. Okay? So that's very basic stuff. I'm sure all of you know. Now, next thing I want you to learn about enthalpy. So <clears throat> exothermic reactions, right? They're processes that release heat to their surroundings. Products have less energy than reactants. An endothermic reaction is the opposite. It's a, it's a process or an event that absorbs heat from the surroundings, and the products actually have more energy than the reactants. So we can measure that. And we have something called a standard enthalpy change of a reaction known as delta H. And that's the heat energy exchanged with the surroundings when a reaction happens under standard conditions. So because the enthalpy change for any given reaction will vary with conditions, especially the concentration of reactants and products, the delta H is measured under standard conditions. And that's, of course, pressure at 101.3 kilopascal, temperature at 298 degrees Kelvin or 25 degrees C, a concentration of one mole per decimeter cubed, and usually the most thermodynamically stable allotrope is what this standard is measured against. In the case of carbon, of course, that's graphite. So the only delta H can be measured because you cannot get an actual value for H. So you don't measure H for the initial or final state of the system. It's inferred from the change in enthalpy, okay, because it's an event. So there are lots of different types of delta H's. There's the heat of the reaction, heat of combustion, heat of neutralization, such as when an acid base are mixed and you make a salt uh, and then water. Um, heat of solution, heat of fusion, that's when something melts, heat of vaporization, heat of sublimation. These are mostly um, state changes, right? But you also have heat of formation, and that's got a special name, it's delta H uh, subscript F, and that's the change in enthalpy that accompanies the formation of a mole of one compound from its substrates or reactants, okay? Right, so... Now, combustion, remember, because we talk about how oxidation uh, in the cell is a form of combustion. Combustion is an exothermic reaction. 
So general combustion reactions have a formula, something like a hydrocarbon plus molecular oxygen, go to carbon dioxide, water, and of course, energy. So you can think of something like methane, right? CH4. CH4 plus two oxygen, go to carbon dioxide plus two waters. Now the delta H for that is negative 890 kilojoule. Now that's a combustion reaction, okay? Pretty powerful. Now what about a neutralization reaction? This would be exothermic as well. So you got an acid like hydrochloric acid, a base like sodium hydroxide. They form a salt called sodium chloride and they make water, and finally, energy. But here you have a delta H of about negative 57.3 kilojoule, so considerably less. But you, Because it's exothermic, you do get a delta H in the negative uh, parameters, so that means that energy has been released, right? Okay, so continuing. Exothermic, heat flows out of the system, the surroundings heat up, and the heat exchange of the delta H which is the change in enthalpy, is less than zero, or it's negative, always. Endothermic heat flows into the system. The surroundings cool down, and the heat exchange of the delta H is going to be greater than zero, meaning, of course, positive integers. So an endothermic reaction like water going from a solid to a liquid gives you a delta H of 6.01 kilojoule per mole. That's, uh, so think about the reverse of that reaction. When water goes from a liquid to a solid, you actually then get a negative uh, a delta H, right? And so that's going to give you negative 6.01 kilojoule per mole, making that then exothermic. So I want you to understand that these terms um, are only um, relative valency. The terms are for which direction the reaction is going. So... Let's relate that now to biochemistry. There's a paper published in a journal called Structure way back in 2005. I'll put it in the show notes. Don't worry. And it talks about how polyprotein multi-enzyme complexes, which we've talked about many times in authentic biochemistry, they organize around subunit associations, and they can co-localize, these polyproteins, all of the enzymatic activity. And what that does is it give you, gives you an efficiency couple. And therefore, the activities of all the individual enzymes involved in the polyprotein multi-enzyme complex will channel substrates to products most efficiently. So canonical examples of this in biochemistry are the family of 2-oxoacid dehydrogenases. There are many of them that I've talked about in authentic biochemistry, and they're actually critical uh, axes of oxidative metabolism, right? And they're composed of multiple copies, typically of three different enzymes. You've got a thiamine diphosphate-dependent decarboxylase. You've got a lipoic acid-dependent acyl transferase. And you have a flavin-dependent dehydrolipoyl dehydrogenase. And the complete assemblies can be sometimes as large as uh, nine megadaltons in size. And the association of subutes enables, of course, the complexes to function, as I said, with ultra-high catalytic efficiency. So there are three related 2 axoacid dehydrogenase assemblies that are real common in uh, canonical biochemistry. Pyruvate dehydrogenase, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, and then 
this group of uh, family of enzymes known as branch chain two oxo acids or BCDHs, which is how we call them. We talk about amino acid metabolism. Now, let's get into some detail here about the structure. The scaffolding of each assembly of these polyprotein complexes is formed by the E2 component. So its polypeptide chain is divided into three structurally and indeed, I, I would say functionally distinct domains that are delimited by uh, amino acid sequences that result in flexible linkers. So the C-terminal domain catalyzes the acyl transfer and forms a homotrimer, and in which case the subunit interfaces generate that actual acyl transferase functional domain active site. So these trimers are the building blocks for much larger protein complexes in which you can have eight or up to 20 trimeric units and they associate to form an octahedral or even icosahedral inner core, depending on where you're isolating the protein from, which organism, what, sometimes which tissue. So emanating from each acyl transferase domain of that core are two additional domains of that E2 polypeptide chain. The N-terminal lipoyl domain, that means it has lipoic acid, and the intervening peripheral subunit binding domain, or the PSBD. Okay, so you have two domains now at that N-terminus. That <clears throat> so it is to the latter one that either the E1, the decarboxylase, or the E3, that flavin enzyme, binds in generating the overall assembly. Um, that's the most commonly described in bacteria. And the E2 core generates what's called an icosahedral symmetry. Okay. So you have four catalytic steps. I would actually say five, but most 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 biophysics books like to call them four catalytic steps. And that's for, like, for example, the pyruvate dehydrogenase multi-enzyme complex. And what are they? First substrate, pyruvate, is subjected to a specific and irreversible decarboxylation. Catalyzed by the thiamine diphosphate dependent E1 enzyme. That reaction gives rise to a reactive enamine thiamine diphosphate intermediate. Now, in the second step, which is still catalyzed by E1, the enamine THDP, right, the thiamine diphosphate intermediate, reductively isolates the lipoyl group attached to the lipoamide domain, okay? Now that lipoyl domain that migrates to the acyl transferase domain catalyzes the transfer of the acyl group to ultimately coenzyme A. This is all part of the E2 complex. The final step of the catalysis, then the lipoyl domain visits the E3 active site where the diphylene ring of the pendant lipoil group is regenerated and then ultimately NAD is reduced. Now, see, I call that, when NAD is reduced, I call that reaction five, okay? All right, so that's my, my nomenclature is better. All right, so the polyprotein complex between pyruvate decarboxylase, C1, and the peripheral subunit binding domain, PSBD, of that dihydrolipoil 
acetyltransferase. Remember, that's the E2. The interface is dominated by what's called a charge zipper structural domain. And it's a network of salt bridges so that PB, PSBD, okay, peripheral subunit binding domain, uses essentially the same zipper uh, motif, that a structural domain, to alternately recognize the dihydrolipoyl dehydrogenase, that's the enzyme three, of course, component of that, um, of that PDH, okay? So the PSBD achieves the dual recognition it's necessary through the addition of a network of interfacial water molecules, which are actually unique to that E1 peripheral subunit binding domain. Okay, so follow along, please. Those structural comparisons I just gave you actually allow you to make the observation that the formation of that water enhanced E1, E2 interface, so it's a hydrated interface, is largely enthalpy-driven, whereas the E3 peripheral subunit-binding domain complex, and where water is not involved, is entropy-driven, okay? So see that entropy and enthalpy work together because remember the equation of the delta G that gives free energy for reactions as a delta H um, minus T delta S, okay? So the interfacial water molecules promote the surface complementarity and indeed they contribute to the accumulated strength of multiple affinities of the individual non-covalent binding interactions, and that all generates an enthalpic favorability. It's going to give you a negative delta H, okay? So the potential reach of those lipoyl domains outside of that, you could describe it as an annular shell protein, might also explain how the eukaryotic pyridehydrogenase assembly is inactivated completely and rapidly by just a few pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase reactions. So the PDHK regulates that entire complex by catalyzing the phosphorylation of a serine residue in one of the active site loops within just E1. The dimeric PDHK, that's the kinase, associates with the complex via actually the lipoyl domain. And it likely migrates between that lipoyl domain by a hand-over-hand mechanism, kind of like pulling on a rope. And the lipoyl domain provides a binding site then for that pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase enzyme, while outside that annular shell of peripheral enzymes, while it's residing there. But from that position, the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase can orbit around that annular shell and gain entry into the E3 domain, excuse me, E1 domain, where it's going to add the phosphate, right, to that serine residue. So only the more accessible of the two E1 active sites needs to be the substrate of the kinase for it to exert almost a complete inhibitory effect on the entire E1 complex. With that pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase residing outside the annular shell at all times, 
its activity can be conveniently modulated, you see, in by other upstream regulatory cellular signals. And some of those be very interesting when we get into them. So what I'm telling you is it's all thermodynamics. The, the, the actual way that the PDH functions at such high catalytic efficiency has to do with that interplay between enthalpy and entropy, right? So it's heat exchange and then just the, the complete loss of energy at the end of the whole system. But primarily, the catalytic event is enthalpy-driven. Right? The initial catalytic event, that whole, that whole interaction with the dihydrolipoyl arm from that lipoamide linkage. Okay? And that's why that reaction is favorable. And that decarboxylation is the result of that favorable reaction. And that's why, in fact, thermodynamically, that reaction is irreversible because of the loss of carbon dioxide. All right. Now, let's move up to a paper published uh, in uh, 2014 in Journal Cell. And this is going to be an interesting further discussion here. Remember a long time ago, a long time ago, not probably only a month ago, I was talking to you about sirtuins. Remember, sirtuins are, there's about five of these enzymes, and they're basically known as deacylases or deacetylases. Think about in histones, deacetylating histones and making heterochromatin and decreasing gene expression. That's how we talked about it. It's kind of a canonical signature for them. Of course, sirtuins will deacetylate or deacylate not just histones, but a whole host of other proteins in the cell. We've talked a lot about that through all the cycle of these aging lectures. So sirtuins obviously are really important enzymes because they are involved in epigenetics. They're involved in metabolism. And because of both of those tremendously large uh, phenomena, they are associated with the aging process. So despite a conserved deacetylase domain in these sirtuins, the two you find in the mitochondria called SIRT4 and SIRT5 don't really demonstrate deacetylase activity, either in vitro or in vivo. But the SIRT4 seems to act, now here's where it's interesting, <clears throat> as a potent lipoamidase. And of course, that's going to highly regulate the PDH enzyme complex, right? Because it's going to be, if it's a lipoamidase, it's going to remove the lipoic acid from the amide linkage from a lysine residue in E2. So very important. This is, of course, the mitochondria where this reaction is occurring, right? PDH is occurring in the mitochondria. So and that's where SIRT4 is. So SIRT4 catalytic efficiency for the lipoyl and even biotinyl lysine modifications, uh, which can be done uh, in vitro, is far superior to the deacetylation activity, which is basically negligent. PDH then, that enzyme, pyridiadrogenase, which converts pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, right, has been known to be primarily regulated by phosphorylation of the E1 component that I just explained to you. But this paper published years later in Cell, uh, 2014, when it was published, I'll put it in the show notes, um, they found that SIRT4 enzymatically hydrolyzes a lipoamide linkage from the E2 component. So the dihydrolipoyl lysine acetyltransferase, right, that particular component of E2 is what gets... Um, deactivated by SIRT4. 
So what that does basically is greatly diminish the pyrimidine dehydrogenase activity. Well, the reason it doesn't completely remove it is because the enzyme that is carrying out that reaction, okay, uh, is only one of a, an abundance of um, that enzyme in residence in the mitochondria during PDH activity. Okay, so it's a concentration effect. And it also has to do with whether or not that enzyme, right, the sirtuin is able to do the hydrolysis. And that has again to do with enthalpy changes. And so this paper in Cell demonstrated the CERT4 mediated regulation of that dihydrolipoyl-lysine acetyltransferase, which is that component of E2, and therefore then PDH activity, um, that overall effect regulated metabolic flux. And actually what it causes when you have CERT4 basically turning down amplitude driven down the pyruvate dehydrogenase reaction because of that effect on the dihydrolipoyl lysine acetyltransferase, getting rid of the lipoic acid. So that CERT4 lipoamidase activity inhibiting PDH actually show, shows that CERT4 functions as a guardian of cellular metabolism. Because once that happens, those cell lineages will start becoming glutaminolytic, which means they're going to use glutamine, that amino acid as their carbon source, rather than glucose. Okay, See how significant that one reaction is. So the pyridiadrogenase lipoil group, of course, what does it do? This is reiteration. It facilitates acetate transfer, and it's using a lot of other multi-enzyme complexes, as I already told you. Glutarate dehydrogenase, which is, of course, TCA cycle, and that branched uh, chain 2-oxo acid dehydrogenase complex, which we call PCDC. And so it's involved, and that, that enzyme is really important because it's involved in the catabolism of the branch chain amino acids. Now, you also get it involved in the glycine cleavage system, another amino acid catabolic pathway, and that actually degrades glycine to carbon dioxide and ammonia while using the alpha carbon during that cleavage reaction to generate N5N10 methylene tetrahydrofolate, okay? And all of that is actually involved, is associated with concomitant reduction of NAD to NADH. So you make NADH from that reaction, right? You also get an amino group that could be transferred and you get N5N10 methylene THF, which is involved in C1 metabolism, right? Very important in de novo biosynthesis, for example, of what? Nucleotides, that's correct. Now, what's interesting is very little lipoic acid. Okay, the one we just told you can be removed from its amide linkage from E2 and PDH, right? And then switching, remember, I told you to, from glucose to glutamine. Very little lipoic acid exists as a free acid. Almost all of it ends up being tethered to the epsilon amino group of a conserved lysine residue in all those lipoyl accepting domains of all the target proteins we just mentioned to you. Now, John Cronin from the University of Illinois has worked on the E. coli version of this, and he's demonstrated uh, with a series of elegant papers that there are two pathways for attaching that lipoyl group to those lysine residues in the E2 complex. So lipoic acid um, is first activated 
by ATP. So if you if you add lipoic acid, okay, like in the medium, this is E. coli experiments, you can do that, of course. So preform lipoic acid, you activate it with ATP, and then you transfer um, and, and basically append it a, with a concomitant release of AMP. Okay, so that all then regulates the synthesis of a lipoic acid protein ligase reaction, which gives you the amide linkage with the concomitant release of AMP, as I just said. Now, the other pathway, which is more, which is de novo biosynthesis, basically, um, it's all, and I can tell you that the de novo biosynthesis of lipoic acid comes from fatty acid synthesis, right? So it's a C8 or C8 uh, uh, fatty acid attached to acyl carrier protein. I'll get to that in a moment. Anyways, alternatively, the lipoic group can be synthesized endogenously as an offshoot of fatty acid biosynthesis. So you've got this lip B gene in E. coli, and that's a lipoyl or an octanoyl transferase. And it'll transfer either lipoyl or octanoyl groups from a bacterial type 2 acyl carrier protein to the lipoyl accepting domain. Of course, that's going to be that lysine linkage in E2, the one we're talking about since it's strict tube. So lip A catalyzes the other really cool reaction sulfur insertion into the octanoid. Remember, lipoic acid is that disulfide, right? Uh, and that's how you form then the uh, coherent lipoyl uh, cofactor for E2. Now, evidence for similar endogenous pathways in eukaryotes has been shown uh, from uh, that seminal work from John Cronin's lab. Okay, And it also helped explain why we were able to pick up type 2 acyl-carrier proteins in mitochondria in higher plants when that was being studied way back in the late 1980s and then uh, verified in mammals too. So that type 2 acyl carrier protein come from type 2 fatty acid synthase. That's what that ACP is doing in the mitochondria. It's involved in this octanoyl transfer to the lipid amide, lipoamide linkages in these uh, decarboxylase, de dehydrogenase reactions. Specifically, dehydrogenase reaction. Decarboxylase is just the first reaction. It happens to be in PDH. So you've got a lipoyl synthase, and that catalyzes the insertion of these two sulfurams. Let me talk about that a little bit. And that happens in the unactivated C6 and C8 position, and it has to be a protein-bound octanoyl chain. And that's how you ultimately make the lipoic acid cofactor. So to activate its substrate for sulfur insertion, which also requires adenosylmethionine, okay, in order for that to activate it, this lipa gene product uses a four iron, four sulfur cluster and a sulfur adenosylmethionine or atomet radical chemistry reaction mechanism. And that's probably by the removal of a sulfur from the second auxiliary four iron, four sulfur cluster on the enzyme, uh, which is the lip aging product. That results in the destruction of that cluster entirely during each round of the catalytic event because the, the four iron sulfur, four sulfur cluster has this kind of um, bizarre serine ligation to one of the ions. And after reaction of the octanoyl 
octanoyl lysine containing eight merpeptide substrate, which is how these reactions are done in this paper of PNAS, which was published in 2016. It's where I'm getting this from. Um, once that, once that you, you use that eight merpeptide substrate, you get, and with one equivalent of adesimethionine, that allows the first sulfur atom to be inserted. The serine ligand then dissociates from that iron sulfur cluster. The iron ion is lost, the one that's in play there, and the sulfur atom that is left behind, part of the cluster, then becomes covalently attached to the C6 of that octanoyl sulfide substrate. That confirms, this, this paper that was published in PNAS confirmed that the iron sulfur cluster destruction had to be an active play to obtain a role for that auxiliary cluster as a sulfur source for the lipase um, enzymatic reaction. Now, that is just how you make lipoic acid. So I'm telling you how you make the uh, pyrate dehydrogenase multi-enzyme complex, starting all the way from scratch, from Genova fatty acid synthesis to make that lipoic acid, from octaneal uh, acyl carrier protein, and then by adding in those two sulfur atoms that was later found out uh, back in 2016, how that actually occurs with those two iron sulfur centers. All of that, all of that system, all the thermodynamic favorability of that has to do with electron exchange reactions between that iron sulfur center and the protein complex, okay? In association with the movement of the sulfur atoms making that covalent bond to the octanoyl group already attached to the lysine residue, right? So again, once again, talking about thermodynamics. Let me look on time here where we are. Okay, we're done. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.